Well, we are in Acts chapter 4. And in a phrase, should your time come, stand. Should your time come, stand. We saw in the early chapters, chapters 1 and 2, the birth of the church in Jerusalem. That Jesus is risen from the dead, giving final instructions to his disciples. Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's what I want you to know. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And then Jesus ascended and they looked on and the angels appeared and said, why are you looking into the sky? He's going to come again just as you saw him go. And they went back to Jerusalem and they waited and they prayed just like Jesus had said. And in chapter 2, he fulfilled his promise and sent his spirit and empowered them to proclaim the gospel. And some 3,000 people in those early, early days came to faith in Jesus Christ. And they were together and they loved one another and they worshiped and God was doing incredible stuff through them. And in chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the birth of the church in Jerusalem. And as Dan Wallace, New Testament scholar at Dallas Seminary says, it was the honeymoon period. Christ ascends, sends the Spirit. Peter preaches 3,000 souls and everybody's thrilled. Yay! But then comes chapter 3 and chapter 4. The honeymoon is over. In chapter 3, Peter and John will heal a lame man. And the crowds who knew this man to be lame but now see him leaping are astonished and wondering at what this is. And it gives Peter an opportunity to preach. And indeed he does, as we saw last week, that Jesus is the holy and the righteous one whom you disown and delivered over to death, but whom God raised and glorified to his right hand. He is still at work changing people's lives. And if you will repent, he will wash away your sins and he will give you the Holy Spirit, times of refreshing and the hope of the full restoration of all things in the end. And Peter said, but you must listen to him. You must take heed to him. Don't refuse. He preached the gospel and in chapter four, here it comes. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. The idea of the word may be rushed up to them in the hopes of some sort of confrontation. They're being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The priests, the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, these were the ones responsible for the holy site. And these were the ones who hoped to keep the peace, that no messianic expectations would break forth within Jerusalem such that they would lose their influence and their relationship with Rome. It was a good gig for these. But now that the apostles are preaching in the temple, that's where they were, in the temple area, and that Hundreds, if not thousands, of people are gathering to them. They are now threatened. Their influence over the people, their relationship with Rome, and they don't like it. In verse 3, they laid their hands on them and put them in jail, 
until the next day, for it was already evening. Your faithfulness to Jesus, my faithfulness to Jesus, may well court persecution. Probably you've already experienced it to some extent throughout your life. Whether it was a family member or a friend or co-workers or neighbors or whoever it might be, your faith in Jesus Christ wasn't so hip, happening or hot. And they may have let you know about it or they may have ignored you or whatever it might have been. The gospel, in the words of the Apostle Paul, is an aroma of death to some and an aroma to life to others. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul said it like this, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Paul was reflecting upon his ministry. And the proclamation of the gospel that, that when it is proclaimed, there are some who hear the words and in a natural way can make sense of what you or I are saying. But they don't see the glory in it. They don't see the life in it. They think it is foolishness. And they go from death to death. They reject it. Others hear the same words naturally put the same words together and understand what is being said. But then by an act of the grace of God, they also see the glory in it. The majesty in it. And it is a message to them, life to life. It's been the story ever since for the last 2,000 years. You remember we said back in chapter 2, whenever the Spirit came and gave them miraculous ability to speak in other languages. There were some there who looked at this and said, they're just drunk. And if you were here then, you remember me quoting my old pastor that he had written in the Bible that he gave me, the beginning of a very sad story. That in the face of God and his work, there would be some who believe, but there would be others wouldn't. And here this picks up steam. In verse 4, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So God is adding to his number. And though Peter and John have been thrown into prison, as Paul would later say, the word of God is never imprisoned. It was accomplishing its purposes. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, I think what comes out of it for you and for me is that our faithfulness to Jesus may well court slander, marginalization, ostracism, persecution, 
And who knows, more and more in our day, it may get worse and worse for us. It can be for many reasons, no doubt, but it may well be the content of that which we proclaim. We proclaim that there is one and only God, that the God of the Bible is the one and only. We proclaim a uniqueness to him that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We proclaim that humanity is created in the image of God, but fallen in sin and absolutely impotent to save ourselves. We proclaim that Jesus Christ was none other than God in the flesh. Eternal Son of God who became one of us for us and for our salvation. We proclaim that his death upon the cross was a substitutionary penal atonement for sins. We proclaim that he rose bodily from the grave and that salvation is found in him and in him alone. We proclaim that there is a day of judgment to come. There is eternal heaven and that there is eternal hell. That kind of faith, that kind of proclamation, that kind of preaching won't always get you loved. Might not always keep your friends. Some of you have family that take issue with your faith in Jesus. Jesus said, I, I came to bring a sword. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against father-in-law. That for some, faithfulness to Jesus Christ would mean those deepest and closest of relationships would have a break. Those of us who believe this to be the word of God and who, who seek to, to build our life upon it, seek to be faithful to it. We try to say with boldness, this is true and that is false. This is who God is and, and that is not. This is who we are. This is what our problem is and this is how God intends to fix it and this is how we relate to him, and this is where history is going. So the content of our faith can get us in trouble, if you will. Also, the moral standards that you and I propose. Not only can we say and ought we say and do we say this is true and this is false, but we say this is right and this is wrong. And in a culture like ours where seemingly everything goes, when you and I make statements that, you know what, that's just not right. In fact, that is wrong. In fact, that is sin. It can get tough. The consequences for the one who is faithful to Jesus can be hard. Not always, and we certainly don't hope for it. Sometimes it comes our way. And when it does, it presents an opportunity. Verse 5. On the next day, so they had 
They had taken Peter and John in the afternoon and didn't have time for whatever it is they wanted to do. The sun went down. They kept them overnight. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. As I read verses 5, 6, 7, I want you to see if it sounds familiar. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power, in what name have you done this? Does that sound like anybody, you know, anybody's experience who was taken in by the authorities, kept overnight, thrown into the middle, and the high priest and the scribes and the elders and the Sadducees gathered around? Of course, this would happen to Jesus the night before he was crucified. And no doubt Peter and John were probably thinking about that. We're not talking years after Jesus had been crucified. We're talking days, weeks. It just happened. They knew all about it. Certainly Peter and John did. Here's the same cast of characters who have hauled them in. And now placing them in the center and giving them the great inquisition. They've got to be thinking, what happened to Jesus in this circumstance? What happened to him is that he was flogged and beaten and crucified. Maybe they were thinking, surely this is going to happen to us. What will they do? What will they do when the cost of being faithful to Jesus is really high? We face losing. Sometimes when we're faithful to Jesus, we may lose friends. We may lose relationships with family. We may lose opportunities at, at work, promotion, travel, raises, invitations to events. We may lose our reputation in the city, in our neighborhood, in the places that we work. Again, we don't seek rejection and persecution and unpopularity, but it may be the cost following following Jesus. In other places around the world, as you and I know, it can cost us a lot more than that. What will you and I do? Like I said, should your time come? Say, you know what? My my faithfulness to Jesus, it it hadn't cost me a whole lot. Maybe that's good. But it could be that your time is coming. What will we do? What did Peter do? Verse 7. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire... By what power or in what name have you done this? Healed this lame man. By what authority? We didn't give you the authority to do this. We're the guys that are in charge. By whose authority did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Let's just take a note here. 
In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus was with his disciples and when he was sending them out and he was instructing them on what they could expect. But when they hand you over, do not worry about what you are to say. For it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speaks, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. In so many words, I think we can say of the Holy Spirit to his faithful children. In the hour of need, he's there when we need him. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. And here in his hour of need... Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. So here's Peter and John hauled in, stewing over it, maybe not, but thinking about it, surely, overnight. And John, this is, seems eerily similar to what happened to our Lord. Yep. And they killed him. Yep. What would they do in the face of that? It was an opportunity. Peter had had similar opportunities just weeks before, hadn't he? Hey, you're one of them, aren't you? I, no. You were, with, you were with Jesus, weren't you? No, I was not. Don't you know him? Aren't you friends with him? I don't know him. When it got really hot... In the kitchen, Peter got out. He denied Jesus three times over to save his own skin. Here he has another opportunity and things are seemingly so different for him, which is awesome. He had been a fisherman who was called by Jesus and he began to follow Jesus and and yet he had become a great failure with his three-time denials of Christ. And because of it, he's, he, was, he was done. He'd gone back to fishing, back to his former life. And yet Jesus, risen from the dead, had come to him again. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Three times. How many times did he deny him three times over? How many times did he ask him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. You're back in the game, Peter. And then Jesus would ascend, and then Peter would, or Jesus would send the Spirit into Peter's life. And here, Peter is filled with the Spirit, and he does not deny him this time. He's not ashamed of Christ now. 
He stands. I might be reading this wrong, but take it and see what you think. It seems to me he comes a little bit, I'm going to use the word defensive, but simply an answer to a question. By, by whose name, in what name have you done this? Peter, straightforward, is going to answer the name of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He moves to be on the offensive, if you will. He could have simply just answered the question and been done, but Peter boldly takes an opportunity to keep talking about Jesus and to be bold about it. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, yikes, whom God raised from the dead, there it is again, and we've seen it over and over again, even in the first few chapters of Acts. You killed him, but God raised him. You crucified him, but God raised him. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Hey, he's the one. He keeps talking. Psalm 118. Seems to be in the words, it's, it's, it's a psalm of David speaking probably as the king of Israel, of the nations who had gathered against Israel and against their king and who had rejected the king of Israel. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Well, Jesus saw that in the book of Matthew as a prophecy of himself. Peter sees it here as a prophecy of Christ. Jesus was the stone which you rejected. but has become the chief cornerstone. It's just another way of saying you delivered him to death, but God exalted him. God glorified him. He was the one that you, you looked upon and maligned and slandered and didn't think much of. You rejected him. Yet lo and behold, he was the precious one. He was the son of God. He became the chief cornerstone. Cornerstone is the one that is the, the first of the foundation and you set everything else upon it. And he goes further. And there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter and John and the rest of the apostles believed in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That he and he alone is the savior of the world. That there is salvation in no one else. said it before, I think it's worth repeating. Sometimes people can think that there are lots of ways up to God. There are lots of ways to have a relationship with God. It's as if God is at the top of the mountain and we are at the bottom of the mountain and there are lots of ways to get to God. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, we just throw them all in the same mix Hey, this one may be true for me. That one's true for you. Good for you. Good for me. We'll just coexist. And to that, my response is, so you're saying that Christianity is, is, is a legitimate option along with the others. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a legitimate option. Do you understand what Christianity claims to be? Well, I think so, but what? Christianity claims that there is one God 
who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that the eternal Son of God became a man for us and for our salvation, that he lived a holy life that you and I could not live. We were sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and he came and lived a life we couldn't live, and then he went to a cross, and God the Father laid on him the sins of the world. There was a cup of the wrath of God to be drunk, and he drunk it. He took the wrath of God for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then having poured out his wrath upon his son and extinguished it and justified his wrath, satisfied his wrath, God raised him from the dead and welcomed him back into heaven at the right hand of God. To come again in great glory one day. That's what Christianity proclaims. It's not just one of a handful that all go up to God just in different ways. If you were God sitting at the top of the mountain. And there were other ways to reach you and to be in relationship with you. Would you have ever crucified your son? If Buddhism will get you there, Islam will get you there. If Hinduism will get you there, if the good works of American suburbanites will get them there, would you have ever crucified your son upon the cross of Calvary? It just doesn't make any sense. Peter and John believed that Jesus Christ was the one and the only God in the flesh for salvation for all the world. Peter stood when his time came. By God's grace, when your time may come, should your time come, should mine whether it's just conversations over dinner or at lunch or in the neighborhood, whatever it might be. May God give you and me grace to stand. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and love and sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the sake of the gospel. If I take a stand, I'll be disparaged by the world. I'll be belittled. I'll be scorned. I'll be slandered. I'll be maligned. I'll be dismissed. Just read to you from Matthew 10. Behold, I send you out of sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about what you, about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in the hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. 
children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Y'all, that happens. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house, meaning Jesus, visible, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Be bold. Speak. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The very heads of Hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You're more valuable than the sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the member of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Whew. Faithfulness to Jesus may bring some hardship into your life and mine, and it provides an opportunity. Will we stand or maybe grow quiet? Well, Peter stood. May God give you and me grace. I think there's a handful of things just briefly in the rest of our text that may help us. Number one, let's commune with Jesus. Watch this in verse 12, 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, this doesn't mean that these men were stupid. If you've ever read 1 Peter, 2 Peter, this man was not illiterate. If you've ever read the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation written by John, these men were not stupid. What this means is that they were unversed in the rabbinical schools. These guys were fishermen. They'd grown up probably with a daddy who was a fisherman, and they became fishermen too. They were good Jewish boys, no doubt, and had gone to synagogue and the like, but, but they were not trained in the rabbinical schools. They were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed, began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? Have you been with Jesus? You don't have to have a seminary degree to stand tall should your time come. But it seems to me communing with Jesus, being with Jesus, may go a long way to taking your roots and mine deep so that we will have strength 
I'm not so sure that you and I could say. Listen, I don't I don't have to be I don't have to commune with Jesus. I don't have to spend time with Jesus. Because he's already promised that should my time come, he's going to give me the Holy Spirit strength in, in the day of trouble. I don't know. I think Jesus assumed that his disciples would commune with him. I think Jesus, he just believed it. That those who follow him would stay close to him, would read his word and would pray so that their roots would be strong such that when the time comes to take a stand, they will stand. So number one, let's commune with Jesus. Friends, if you don't spend time with Jesus, reading his word and praying, if that's not a regular part of your life, might I encourage it to be so. And if you need any help, please give me a call. Secondly, I'll say it like this, live a distinct and righteous life. Be excellent. In other words, don't give them good reason to persecute you. Verse 14, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to go outside, out of the council, they began to confer with one another. So these guys, they got Peter and John, but there's the lame man who's now healed. He's standing there with them. And they can't say anything about it. This man's life has obviously been changed. So they, they ushered them out and they began to confer with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. I might be stretching here a little bit, but let's live lives up in verse 14 where they have nothing to say and that they cannot deny the distinctiveness of our life. In other words, don't turn there, but Peter, the man who's right here, in 1 Peter chapter 4, he said this, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. So he's saying, listen, if, if, if the unbelieving world is going to give you trouble, don't let it be because of your unrighteous deeds. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, He's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. We quoted it last week, I believe, but you remember in, in Titus chapter 2, where Paul was urging Titus to teach God's people to live righteous lives. One of the reasons he gave for that was, quote, so that they would have nothing bad to say about us. And just as a great illustration, you remember the story of Daniel? In chapter 6, there's some guys who didn't like Daniel and they wanted to do him in. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. 
and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground for accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. They couldn't find any good reason to go to the king and say, king, this is a bad dude. What they did was they went to the king and said, hey, king, why don't you put together a law that says if anybody prays to any other God except you, then they're in big trouble. King said, that sounds pretty good. So they put it into law. Daniel heard that that was the law, and guess what he did? Three times a day, opened up his window and prayed. You're not going to stop Daniel from praying. They had nothing bad to say about him. We need to finish up. Know your story. We've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks. Know your story. Has Jesus Christ changed your life? And if so, how? For some of you, remember we talked about he's delivered you from great sin. I used to be a scoundrel. I used to do this and I used to do that and I used to be, and it was ugly and it was nasty and it was terrible and yet God in his grace saved me and by the power of his Holy Spirit, I'm not perfect, but boy, my life is so changed. For others of us, it may have been preservation. Maybe we were saved as a little kid and there wasn't just a nastiness to us, though there was sin that needed salvation, but we came to know Jesus and we've been growing, but we know our heart. And we know, good night, if it wasn't for Jesus in my life, I would be a scoundrel. And all of us could describe it if you've ever taken a good look at your own soul. The flesh that remains. Well, how has Jesus changed you? I say this. Verse 18, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. You can tell me to quit talking about Jesus all you want, but I, I can't. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. It's just too amazing. I wrote out to the side of my Bible in that verse. I don't know how long ago I wrote it. Oh, may this be true. May this be the culture of Redeemer. I'm not so sure that it is, but I would love it to be. That you and I, in light of what God has done through Jesus Christ in each of our lives, we wouldn't be able to stop speaking about it because of what he's done. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people. Because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For this man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Real quick, faithfulness to Jesus might lead to heat. And in that moment of heat, you and I have a choice. We can either stand for Jesus or we can go quietly into the night, if you will. And Peter stood. May God give you and me grace to stand. And, and as we do, let's, let's commune with Jesus. 
Let's live distinct and excellent lives by the power of his spirit within us. And let's consider and remember and ponder how he's changed our lives that we might be able to say, listen, I can't stop talking. He's been so good to me. Let's pray. Lord, as we disperse, little lights of the world heading out these doors, grabbing kiddos, jumping in our cars, heading back to our homes, to the restaurants, tomorrow getting up and scattering all over in the schools, all over Katy, all over Houston, little lights. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does one light a lamp and put it under a basket. He puts it on a table that it will give light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good, good deeds and give glory to God. May the light of the gospel shine through us, Lord. And when it rubs up against the world, and when there may be cost to faithfulness, Help us stand. Stand for you. Stand for your truth and for your love. No matter what it may cost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.